If you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue on in our study of Peter's epistle. Looking this morning at verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Let me read the text and then we'll pray and dive right in. Paul, you remember, excuse me, Peter is writing here in this greater section of Scripture, preparing us with practical exhortations. And in this particular one, he began in verse 7, so let me begin there. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, help us again. Feed your children, we pray, for your own glory for the sake of Your Son, through whom it is possible, through whom we have hope, through whom we have been made new and right with You. We pray in His name. Amen. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, there's an appropriate question that we ask. It's the title of the sermon this morning. What's your cause? What's your cause? We're all familiar with that question. It's become a a question that is quite in vogue to ask. What's your cause? Everybody today seems to have a cause. Social media has brought on an onslaught of causes, if you will. Everyone has a cause. Either they're genuinely promoting it, in some cases they really believe it, or in some cases they are simply promoting themselves while feigning concern about some greater cause. In short, we call that virtue signaling. Perhaps it started years ago, you'll remember this, in beauty pageants. They would bring the contestants up and they would ask them, what's your cause? You know, I don't know, world peace. Any number of Things that had little to really do with what the person was passionate about. However, brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, we do have a cause. It it is not feigned, it is not contrived, it's not our ideals. We have always had a cause, and whatever comes in life, we will always have a cause. In good times and in bad times, the people of God have a cause. And that cause has been with us from the very dawn of creation itself. That cause and your cause, my cause, 
must be single-minded. It must be narrowed down to one thing. And that causes this, that we bring glory to the name of our God. That we glorify God in all that we do. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore we also have this as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Was that your goal when you woke up this morning? If, if, if I had been uh, waiting outside your room and you walk out of there and say, what's your cause today to be pleasing to Him? Whether at home or absent, whether in good times or bad, I want to be pleasing to God. Young people, you have a full life in front of you. Make as your life's ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Not to please yourself, but to be pleasing to the Lord. Not to please others, but to be pleasing to the Lord who called you. Peter, as part of our continuing education and instruction here in this short epistle, instructing us how to live. Notice the context is set at the beginning of verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, shore up your cause. Make certain your cause. Pursue that cause of bringing glory to God. Peter, in that overarching vein of wanting us to do that and understand that and be passionate about that, now helps move us towards mobilization in order to make that happen. He wants to help us to become better stewards of what God has given us so that we accomplish our cause. So that our goal is reached. So that we reach eternity saying, I have done that which I desired to do and which God created me for that is to glorify him you notice back in verse 8 peter exhorts us to keep fervent passionate white hot intense in our love for one another d edmund hebert in his commentary says now this as we turn the corner to verse 10 love has turned to service That love now has hands and it has feet. And I want you to notice this morning in these two verses, Peter addresses the individuality of your cause and my cause. So let me just warn you this morning. This is not a sermon where you can set your mind on autopilot and say, man, this sermon is for so-and-so. This sermon is for the person next to me. Honey, did you hear that? It was like the pastor knew exactly what you needed today. And no, I didn't email him. This is for all of us. Every one of us is about to take a rifle shot to the heart. An arrow to pierce where we are. This is not that sermon for someone else. There are three Statements about the individuality of our cause. I want you to have these before we jump into the text so that you can follow along this morning. Number one, the individual's responsibility. The individual's responsibility. Second, the individual's accountability. And then third, the individual's liability. 
As Peter opens with the individual's responsibility, he opens and he bases your cause of bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Father with the realization that we are not spectators. Brothers and sisters, we have an individual responsibility and that begins by realizing this, you are not a spectator without responsibility. Every Christian is a Christian who has responsibility. There is no such thing as a Christian without responsibility. We are such a consumeristic society that we come to worship services and we, and we claim to believe certain things and we read books and we go to conferences and we download podcasts and we go on to YouTube and we listen to all this like a sponge and we are soaking it up and yet we are tempted to believe along with that comes no responsibility. And Peter says, do you have a cause to glorify God? Yes, you do, Christian. That goes without saying. Then you have a responsibility. Every Christian, every Christian has a fiduciary responsibility to every other Christian with whom their life intersects. That's particularly true in the church. As our lives are committed to one another as members of this body, we have a fiduciary responsibility. Now what's a fiduciary? That's a big word. Sounds like it goes on a Raymond James commercial, right? What does fiduciary mean? It means of or relating to a duty, acting in good faith with regard to the interest of another. Let's just boil it down to what Larry read earlier. Look not out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. The Christian life, Christianity, is by nature a fiduciary responsibility. If you are going to follow Christ, you have signed up for a life of caring for other people. There are not Christians who have that responsibility and those who don't. If you are a Christian, you have that responsibility to look out for the welfare and the good of one another, to serve one another as Christ has served us. It'd be helpful to be reminded at this point that we are not given, brothers and sisters, the opportunity to define what the Christian life is. We're not. We can't say, well, I don't, I don't think I like that. I, you know, I prefer to think of it as fill in the blank. God has written the manual. As much as he has defined biological gender, God has defined the Christian life. It's as clear as that. And he says, in that, we have a responsibility. Every individual who names the name of Christ has a responsibility. Listen, you don't have the aptitude, nor do you have the authority, nor do you have the skill to define how the Christian life is to be lived. Only God and only God's word can do that for us. And so he has defined it as this, as everyone has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Peter begins again by reminding us that genuine Christianity has a cause. That cause is love that bears itself out in service. And how do we serve? How do we serve? 
We serve by the gifts that are given to us by God. God not only tells you that you have a responsibility, God says, no, here's the tools, here's the gift to meet that responsibility. Here's how you're going to do that. It's not in your strength, so don't don't feel as if it all depends on you. It still depends on me, but I am going to call you and equip you to do that. And so there's an individuality about it. Notice that in the text this morning, verse 10. As each one, and and I can't quite convey the emphatic nature of this as it occurred in Peter's letter, but but it is the each one that is emphatic. It, It places great emphasis on the individuality here. Immediately, Peter goes after those who would use as a false excuse for not serving, saying, I really don't have a gift. Poor me. You know, all these other multi-talented people at Colonial Bible Church, they can do it all. I can't do anything. I guess I'll just sit and consume. Peter says, no, that's not possible. Each one of you has received a gift. Every one of you has received something from God Almighty. Use it. Use it. It may not be the gift you wanted. It may not be what you wish you were like. But you have something that God says you have a great responsibility to use it. Notice what he says. As each one or just as each one. This is not in question. Just as you have. Yes, I know you have. I sent it certified mail and I got the return receipt. I know you got it. You have received something. Notice something interesting about this particular verse it does not refer to offices peter does not write and say let the pastors handle this let the elders handle this let the deacons handle this let the evangelist handle this he doesn't refer to offices but he does refer to gifts and guess who has the gifts every one of us every one of us has a gift, if we are redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given gifts, every single member. That's Peter's emphasis, but then he goes on and he describes the quality of the gift. You have an individual responsibility because you've received an individual gift, and that gift is given As a grace of God. Notice what he says. As each one of you has received a special gift. The word special is supplied by translators to try to smooth out the reading of the word. Because in English we don't really talk like this. But it would literally say this. As each of you has received a grace gift. The word is charisma. As each one of you has received a Charisma, and then this does not refer to sign gifts. You might hear the word charisma and your ear picks that up and says, oh, charisma, charismatics, this must be talking about charismatic gifts. That's not what he's referring to. The word charisma is from the same root as charis, which in Greek is grace. As each one of you has received a grace gift. What is grace? Unmerited favor of God. 
an unearned gift. As each one of you has received a gift that you did not earn, God has given that to you. And he expects that in giving you that gift, you will use that gift. The gifts are from God and they reflect the beauty and diversity in God. The multifacetedness of God. The completeness of God. Only God could do this to to give to a church. Think about this. To give to a church all that that church needs. Logically, think with me about this. Can God fail? No. Is God incomplete in anything that he is? No. So therefore, if a church is genuinely full of converted, genuine believers, they are going to be filled with that which is unfailing, perfect, unchanging, from God to be deployed. So if a church is deficient, it is because of one of two things. One, they are really not regenerate as they claim to be. Or two, they are in rebellion and disobedience, not employing their gifts that they do have in service. Because God has given a church everything it needs. If indeed it is a church. He is unfailing. He is perfect in all that he does. So if we can point our face, oh, that church, it's just, it's, it doesn't have what I need. We need to ask the individual question, am I? Am I exercising my individual responsibility and quality of this gift as something that comes as a grace of God? It's a free gift of God. It's an unearned gift of God. And when God gave this gift, as we've learned on Wednesday nights in our study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, He gave it all at once. There's not multiple gifts that keep coming. They can't be sought and pursued and conjured up. God gave these at our salvation. Imagine this. Just imagine this for a moment with me. Imagine having a parent who at one time in your life, could give you everything, and I mean everything, that you would possibly need for absolutely every scenario that you were going to face for your entire life at one time. Every bit of wisdom, every material need, every emotion. I mean, they just get, okay, here, here's, here's your life package, son or daughter. And they give it to you. And great! Fully equipped. I'm ready to go face life. That's exactly what God did for us at our salvation. He gave us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Does that mean we've matured to the point of understanding it all, knowing how to deploy it all and use it? No. But he gave us what we need, and that's Peter's emphasis. It is a charisma. It is a gift of grace, undeserved. Now imagine this scenario. A child at a birthday party receives such a gift from a parent who knows far more than the child knows, by the way. And they receive the gift, that undeserved gift, and then they throw it back in the parent's face. 
or they set it aside and cross our arms. That is not what I wanted. That's terrible, isn't it? Some of us have probably seen something akin to that in our life. Hey, let's be honest, we've all probably done something like that in our life. Maybe not outwardly, but certainly inwardly. That's terrible. And the point being is this, and Peter is saying, look, every one of you has received a gift of grace. The end is near. You need to start using that gift. It is needed now more than ever. Don't throw it in God's face. Say, That's not what I wanted. That's not what I imagined. That's not what I deemed to be helpful. What? We look at that, we say, what an abuse of grace. What a self-centered, spoiled, childish thing to do. But it's worse than that. Because this far exceeds the analogy, and this is where the analogy breaks down with an earthly parent. For God to give you that gift, it cost the death of His own Son. How dare we then take that gift and say, I don't want to do anything with that. Do you understand what it cost, Christian? Are you a Christian? Then you must understand the cost of that gift coming to you in grace was the death of His only Son. The shedding of His Son's blood. How dare we say, well, I, you know, this responsibility thing, let somebody else do it. When it costs the sacrifice of the Son of God to redeem us, bring us into the family where gifts could be bestowed. What a quality. What, what, what a genuine rarity as one and only of its kind this gift is. Now notice the application. We are to give to others. As each one of you individually has received this great responsibility of, a, of an unearned gift of grace that came through the death of God's Son Employ that gift by serving one another to perform duties that render assistance. Philippians 2, 4, again, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. You know, Philippians 2 is quite the chapter, isn't it? I asked Larry to read that this morning. For a very specific purpose. And that purpose is this. Notice Paul's order. He issues the overarching command in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. He then immediately goes on to illustrate that through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he later cites another example in the life of Timothy in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Why Timothy? Because, verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Timothy had such a servant's heart, he had such an understanding of his individual responsibility that he would come and he would carry out that serving those in his charge. His fellow Christians. I want you to notice something. Notice that Paul's description of Timothy, that Peter's description of us in 1 
Peter chapter 4, is without a title. It's without a job description. It's without a ministry position. None of those things are required to fulfill what Peter tells you to do. Well, you know, if, if I was a Sunday school teacher, if I was a deacon, if I was this or that, if I had an official capacity, you know, I'm just, I just need to go to a place where I can serve. That typically translates into, I need to go to a place where I can have a title. Brothers and sisters, there is a mission field and service opportunities sitting all over this room, and nobody needs a title to fulfill those. Nobody needs a program to fulfill those. All you need is what you've already been given, and that is a grace gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to serve each other, to care for each other. That was the beauty and the, the glory of the, the early church. That they, they didn't have. Do you realize how complicated we've made church in the day we live in? Do you realize it? You know, I, I hear it. What are you? Well, I'm the senior pastor of such as. I'm sorry, hang on. Let me go back to Acts. I can't find that. Well, I, I, I'm this, that, or the other. We've got all kinds of fancy titles today, and as if we've become a corporation, not a body. And the ideal and the, the, the power of the early church, the beauty of the early church was that every member took individual responsibility to serve each other. And guess what they did? They turned the world upside down. Why? They were motivated. They understood that every one of us has a place. That is our cause, brothers and sisters. That is how God is glorified. It's not complicated. You matter in the kingdom. You matter in this church. You matter to other Christians who know you. Serve them. Serve them. You have an imperative place. And by the way, you can't be replaced. You're here as a believer because God put you here. And He knows more than we do. And if you're not serving and if you're not using your gifts, realize this. You're leaving a hole. No one person holds all the gifts so that, well, they don't really need me. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. When we exercise our gifts, we open up opportunities for worship in our own lives. And that is our cause, to, to worship God by our actions. Notice Peter says, you have received these, so use them as a good steward. What's a steward? Stewards in Peter's day were a particular class of people charged most commonly a slave in a household who were charged with overseeing the wealth and the household of their masters. That's a lot of responsibility. You know, I, I thought about jobs, you know, things people do for, for their vocation. I think one of the jobs I would least want to do would be a financial advisor or investor. Talk about pressure. Being in charge of someone else's money would terrify me. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to be the cause of loss. 
There's a lot that goes into that. And, and, and Peter is saying, listen, you are a steward. You are charged with managing the household of God and, and mastering uh, the, the wealth that God has placed in you as a, as a recipient of his grace. It's a position of great prestige. Not everybody was a steward. It had to be somebody with proven character. Peter says, as good stewards. Notice he uses an adjective. As a good steward, which implies there is a way in which you can be a bad steward. So be a good steward. Be one who is responsible. Hebert points out that they are managers, not owners. Brothers and sisters, we are managers of what God has given us. Your gifts, your life does not belong to you. Belongs to God. I'd encourage you if you have time and when they get it up on the website to go to gracechurch.org, Grace Community Church. Yesterday, Steve Lawson preached two messages on time and eternity. And if you didn't listen to those, you need to. Because we all have a date. We all have a reckoning for our stewardship of what God has given to us. We will answer for how we use the gifts that He gave us. Hebert goes on to say the entrustment was not made for him for his own enjoyment to the steward by the master. The steward is simply responsible to use the gift for the benefit of those who serve. That's what God has given us a gift for and we will give an account and an answer for all that God has made us stewards over. Your charge then, my charge, our cause is to be faithful. <clears throat> think of Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents that Jesus tells the, the master comes and he gives uh, different amounts to uh, his servants and, and talents and they some take it and invest it and make more and uh, other ones do and then another one just sits on it and what does he say to that steward? You wicked and slothful servant. Brothers and sisters, we've been granted a grace gift may not be said of any of us that we were wicked and slothful servants. But we use that for the good and the, the betterment of others in our life. That places, doesn't it, a great emphasis on the responsibility. That idea of stewardship. And it ought to direct our mind to the second thing this morning. That is the individual's accountability. And so as Peter is building the theme of stewardship here, he moves on and he gives an accountability in two broad areas. Your, your giftedness, and again, if you haven't been here on Wednesday night, we've discovered that the spiritual gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, fall into one of two categories. And there's a great accountability in both. You either have a speech gift or you have a gift of service. And intertwined into both of these categories is a, is a very sobering reality. I want you to notice it with me this morning. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Secondly, in gifts of service... Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. As a steward, as one simply charged with managing the gift God has entrusted to you, the 
the talent, if you will, to use Jesus' example, and I don't mean talent like, oh, I can sing or, you know, whatever. But the talent of money that's given, the gift that's given to us as stewards, we're to use that with an understanding that God has been the source of that and God is the source of its continuing use and will ultimately be received back to Him. I want you to notice some specifics about the examples so that you see in practical application your own life. Because I can promise you this, if you are a child of God, if you've been redeemed by God, you fit into one of these two categories, okay? So you're somewhere in one of these two. To those who speak. This verse, for me personally, has a very sobering effect. Because what does he say? If you are going to speak, you are to speak as the oracle, the mouthpiece, the ambassador, the representative of God. If you open your mouth and you claim to speak for God, you had better well make sure that what you speak is of God. We look at the Ten Commandments. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, I grew up thinking that was just using God's name as an expletive, and that, was a, and that is a terrible thing to do. But it's more than that. It is attaching to any statement that God said this or in, implying that God said this when indeed He didn't say that. That's blasphemy. If we are to speak, brothers and sisters, and to some degree every Christian is called to speak, to our families, to our children, to our friends. When we speak, let yourself speak, Peter says, as one who is echoing the very words of God. That is what the gift of speaking is. It is simply an echo chamber for the words which God has already spoken. What is preaching? Preaching is an echo chamber for the words that God has already spoken to come through. Nothing more and nothing less. Adding nothing to, taking nothing away from. Peter says, listen, be aware. Proceed with caution. When you speak, make sure it is this. That you are speaking on the authority of what God has spoken. This is not claiming that we have new revelation from God. But what it does show is that we know the Scripture so well that when we speak and apply it, it comes back with the authority with which it was written. Thus says the Lord. That's highly sobering, isn't it? And to understand that we will give an account for the things that we say. Anytime we speak, we are to speak truthfully so that God approves of what we are saying. James has much to say, doesn't he, about the tongue? Let us be careful, brothers and sisters, how we use that gift, that calling to speak to those who preach, to those who teach, to those who exhort, to those who admonish. Make sure we do it as stewards of the message of God. It's not our own message that we speak. You know, the risk of taking God's name is in vain is quite high. We dare not make God a liar. If God has called you to speak, 
you have no choice but to speak, but be careful what you speak. William Brownson says this, we are a messenger, not an improviser. You're an ambassador, not the originator. We've been sent with a message. We are to deliver that message and nothing more. In the New Testament, as Paul talks about being a preacher of the gospel, he refers to himself as a herald. What was a herald? A herald is one who literally went into the public square with the message and read it word for word from the king and then left. It wasn't his responsibility to ensure this result or the other. It was simply to proclaim what he had been sent to proclaim. That's the idea here. Now I want you to notice again the context. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. There's an ominous nature about that, isn't there? There is oppression and persecution and difficulty that these Christians are under. And Peter is saying, if you're going to speak, you better speak as if you are speaking the oracles of God. Don't pull any punches. Hey, let's face it. When things are difficult, it's easy to pull punches, isn't it? It's easy to soften the message. In fact, in Sunday school this morning, when they were talking about Miles Coverdale, who made the, one of the early editions of the English Bible more acceptable to the Roman Catholic Church by softening the words. Tish, tish, Miles. Let it be what it is. Peter, hey, the end of all things is near. Things are going to get difficult. Don't say things to make your life easier. Don't say things to soften language about sin, about loyalty to Christ, etc., etc. Speak the truth. You can speak it in love, but speak the truth. Tell it like it is. We cannot and we must not tamper with the message from the pulpit, from the dinner table, over coffee, not beside our children's beds to soften any messages. We must, brothers and sisters, as Christians, speak as the oracles of God. Speak what God has spoken. Tell it like it is, Christian. Speak plainly, speak clearly. But why? Because God has. To those who serve, second category, gifts of service. Notice what Peter says. He says, uh, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. I think Peter knows that he adds something here that he doesn't to the speech gifts because the temptation in serving so many of you are such wonderful servants in, in a variety of different ways. You serve so naturally, you might be tempted to think, hey, I'm doing this because I'm just good. That's just how I'm wired. And Peter says, tish, tish. If you're going to serve, be reminded of this. You are serving because God gave you the strength. God gave you the intellect. God gave you the ability. God gave you the compassion. God gave you the heart. God gave you the physical stamina. Whatever it is, don't think for a minute you're doing this because of you. Not because you had lessons in this or you 
know how to do that. No. In the strength which God supplies, which should make us, should it not, humble people? Dependent people? Worshiping people? It's not me, it's the Lord. Humble people? The reality is that when we serve, we are only doing so because God supplied the strength for the service. Strength of will, strength of body, strength of mind. Peter says we need those things. Well, Christian, don't mistake what Peter is saying here. God may at times heighten what you are gifted naturally to do. He may take a natural disposition and transform that and use that for His glory, but in no way is that you. In no way is that your own strength. And this is a humbling reality that Peter is going to go back to in just a few verses in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to who? Humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Humility is required with service as much as fidelity is with speaking. Both require fidelity, both require humility, but Peter seizes on the opportunity to remind us our strength is from the Lord. Are you serving, Christian? Let me just ask you. Are you serving? The reality is, let's just talk shop as a family here. We are a small church. We're not a heavily programmatic church. We don't have lots and lots of programs where we're constantly, you know, milking the church for volunteers. But that in no way means there are not multitude areas for service. It shouldn't take an announcement from the pulpit to say, hey, we need somebody to serve in this for you to be serving. You ought to be finding ways to serve each other outside of a particular time and date, day of the week? Are you serving? Remember, you're doing so as God's gift to others and as a gift to you so that you will have something to offer to God as an act of worship. It's not from you and it is not for you. I want you to notice lastly that that leads us then to the individual's liability. What is a liability? A a liability is something for which one is liable. It is an obligation, a responsibility. And I like this last word best, a debt. Every Christian has a liability. Every Christian has a debt of worship that we owe to our Creator and our Redeemer. A debt of worship that will be called into payment. How do we know this? Because going back to that great passage in Philippians chapter 2, we read this, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that the same pattern that Peter is following here? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Christ is not just a name. Christ is His title. It is His Lordship, which every tongue will proclaim, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Some will proclaim it under the pain of eternal wrath and judgment, but they will still proclaim it. Others who are redeemed will proclaim it with joy out of a redeemed heart. 
that wants nothing more in eternity than more time to worship their God? That's the beauty of eternity. We'll have nothing else to do. We'll have all of eternity. We need to cultivate then a sense of what will be expected from us, that liability. Here's the reality. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind has been trying to figure out a way to get out of paying that debt. Even before the fall, we could argue, Adam and Eve were trying to figure out a way to undo what God had done. We're still trying to do that today in a variety of ways. One of the ways is language. We don't like the word that God has spoken, so what are we doing in our culture? We are hijacking language to mean things that it absolutely does not mean, that is nonsensical in order to destroy the foundations of word and language and reality that God created. We do it with worship too. Peter gives us a purpose clause now. So that, for the purpose of... Why do we have these gifts? So that we can fulfill our liability of worship, a debt we owe to the Lord, so that God would be glorified. The liability that we owe, we repay in part by deploying our spiritual gifts so that others are built up and God is glorified as we point to Him as the source and the strength of our service. We owe God that debt of worship. Adam and Eve owed God that debt of worship. They tried to get out of that by making themselves God. But they still owed it. And all mankind has owed it ever since. But you and I, Christian, even more owe that. Why? Because of the bestowing work of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us gift oh we we owed god worship before but now we really owe him as a bestower of grace of salvation of ability now to work for the good of others just as christ did do you want to be like jesus do you you want to be like jesus serve speak Make others of higher priority than yourself. Make much of the body of Christ. Through Christ's work on our behalf, not only are we accepted by God as loved and as adopted children, but through Christ we are also able to fulfill the good works which God ordained for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. Not for salvation, but because you have been saved. Because you have received grace upon grace. Peter now makes an interesting and important, even if subtle, statement. Notice what he says. So then in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. God already possesses glory and dominion. God will not be robbed. 
God will not be robbed of his glory and dominion. He already has it. Let me tell you who will be robbed should you choose not to deploy in his service. You. You. You'll have no means by which to worship God. You're like the kid that shows up at the birthday party with no present. God is not in jeopardy of losing His glory. You are in jeopardy of losing your joy. The joy of worship. The joy of submission. The joy of exalting Christ. It's not that God has potential to be glorified. God has potential to have dominion. He already has it. The end is near. Everyone's going to try to strip God of His glory. Everyone is going to try to strip God of His dominion. That's why we have so much nonsensical talk about power structures and blah, 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 blah. It all goes back to wanting to dethrone the ultimate power structure, which is God. He already has the dominion. He has the glory. The question is, will you participate in it? Will you submit to it? Will you increase it in your own mind? You have a debt to offer Him. Make no mistake about it, there will be a day when He calls your note. It will be called. We will give an account for how we use the gift of grace that we were given. Again, not for salvation, but for worship. May God find us faithful, brothers and sisters, to be deploying that which God has done in us for His glory. It's not yours anyway. Notice the extent of time. Forever and ever and ever. This in the original language of the, the Greek New Testament was the strongest way one could formulate eternity. It, it, you know, you all know, and I was reminded at Easter we didn't do it this year, and I was chastised. Rightly so. But, but we didn't listen as we do to that, that, that little clip from Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge. In which he closes his great exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, to Him be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And he goes on and on. And then he says, and when you get through with all of the forevers, then Amen. That's what Peter's doing. Every age wrapped up and rolled into the next age so that it just builds and builds and builds and builds and it's incomprehensible to the human mind the eternality of god but for all of that eternity god is glory god has the dominion and amen may we be part of by our service and deploying of what god has done in us May we be part of just simply exalting what God is. Who God is. And what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Has Christ changed you? Has He changed you? What about your life of using your 
new life declares the glory and dominion of God in your changed life. Oh, may God who called us, may God who redeemed us, may God who gifted us continue to strengthen us and humble us and to deploy us so that we sing that last phrase, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your divine wisdom and sovereignty and goodness and power in our lives. The end is near. We know that. Whether that means that Jesus returns or we're called home through death. The end is near. For every one of us, for the youngest among us, the end is really near. Lord, make us faithful while we're here. Strengthen us while we're here to be what You have created us to be, to exercise the stewardship that You have given to us. As Jonathan Edwards prayed, we pray as well. Stamp eternity upon our eyes. As Moses prayed, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom for living for You and for Your glory. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul, when it comes that time, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And God is worshipped in how we have lived. Lord, make Colonial Bible Church consisting of all of her individual parts a church that desires to make God known in the way that we use our giftedness. May we never be guilty of using it for ourselves, but for one another and for your kingdom. Our time is limited. Cause us to remember that so that we may make all haste to do what is pleasing in Your sight. For we pray this in Your name, Jesus, because You are Lord. You are Christ. Amen.